0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a
1: month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains Murder. Lots and lots of murder.
0: You stinking bastard.
1: People tell me, you going to go down and go to hell. I'm not wrong. It's time for 911, where's your
0: emergency? Oh,
1: this is shady. We're pretty one work. What's the, the police. Send
0: the police to help. Anyway, don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the hip by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching
1: out. That's when the cannibalism started eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I, I we a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub of a face,
0: cherub face little boy who would, life would, who would, who's, with me. I harm somebody, damn it.
1: Kill someone to be an enormous amount of life. Especially at first, an enormous amount of of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger.
0: 74 year old widow Dottie Davis disappeared from the beautiful seaside suburb of Maroubra in Sydney in 1995. She was never seen again, and the case soon went cold.
1: Two years later, mother of three, Kerry Whelan, was kidnapped in Parramatta and a $1 million ransom was demanded for her safe return.
0: It would take police nearly a decade to find the perpetrator of these seemingly unrelated cases and bring the bastard to justice.
1: This is part one of our two-part special on That Bastard Bruce Burrell.
0: Hi, I'm Barney Black.
1: And I'm Tara Saraban.
0: And this is Bloody Murder.
1: We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia.
0: And indeed around the globe.
1: As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones.
0: If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you.
1: Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons.
0: We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story.
1: If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com.
0: As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our Pulitzer Prize winning and World Peace bringing first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes.
1: As well as exclusive sweary and Careberry patron only episodes.
0: They really are sweary and Careberry. They
1: really are. They're both those things.
0: Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges.
1: Also, quite a delightful array of merchandise.
0: That's right. Now, we're still in lockdown and recording separately.
1: But somehow I can still smell Barney.
0: Yeah, I smell good. Mm -hmm. All right, Tara, let's get murdery.
1: Lurline Bay is a small rocky cove nestled between Coogee and Maroubra beaches in Sydney's eastern suburbs. It's a beautiful postcard, picture-perfect area with high cliffs giving way to the expanse of the big blue of the Pacific Ocean below.
0: That's my second favourite ocean, after Billy.
1: Billy Ocean, right. Okay, get out of my dreams.
0: It sounds fancy.
1: It is fancy. The houses overlooking the ocean have million-dollar views and an even higher price tag. In 1995, 74-year-old widow Dorothy Davis lived at 9 Undine Street, Maroubra, which overlooked the bay. Her husband Jack had died of cancer ten years earlier and left her his fortune. According to the book Lady Killer by Candace Sutton and Erin Connolly, Dottie, as her friends called her, was a friendly woman who often gave out sweets to the neighbourhood children. She was described by her daughter Marie Dawes as being a loving mum and grandma, a loyal sister and trusted friend.
0: She sounds like a sweet old broad.
1: She certainly was. Undine Street, where she lived, was very steep indeed. It was fine for Dottie to walk it when she went out, as it was all downhill, but coming home was no mean feat.
0: Well, no-one likes walking up hills. I, I hate walking up hills personally. And when I, <laughs> You hate
1: walking anywhere.
0: And when I used to ride my bike, I'd, I'd get off my bike and push it up the hill because it was too hard to ride up the hill and there's no shame in that.
1: Dottie suffered from arthritis in her legs, which made walking up the steep hill too difficult, so she preferred to drive her Mercedes. I'm not so sure what your excuse is, (laughs) Barney. I don't have one. Dottie drove everywhere unless she was visiting a friend who lived close by. And being a lovely woman, she had several. Just down the road lived Dallas and Bruce Burrell. Dallas was the daughter of Dottie's old friends, Les and Shirley Bromley. 31-year-old Dallas had known her pretty much all her life and affectionately called her Auntie Dottie. In January 1994, Dallas was diagnosed with choriocarcinoma, an aggressive cancer of the uterus. Dallas had lost all her hair due to receiving chemo treatments twice a week, and Dottie would often pop in to visit her and see how she was going. On Monday, May 29, 1995, Dottie was cleaning out her house, finding items to donate to a charity garage sale for the Randwick Lantern Club for Deaf and Blind Children. Charitable Dottie was a founding member of the club and had worked tirelessly for them for 33 years. On the morning of Tuesday, May 30th, a builder named Kenneth Hulse had come to Dottie's place to continue working on her veranda. Ever the welcoming hostess, Dottie would usually bring Ken a cuppa and some bickies for afternoon tea. Her neighbour, actor and dancer Paul Mercurio from the movie Strictly Ballroom, saw her move her car to give him more space to unload materials. Dottie drove her Mercedes to the doctors to have a skin cancer removed from her face later that morning before returning home.
0: Which is a very Australian thing to do.
1: Yeah, actually, we have one of the highest skin cancer rates in the world.
0: Well, the Indigenous Australians have more pigmentation in their skin to deal with the harsh rays.
1: Yeah, our pale convict asses just get burnt.
0: They sure do. At around 1pm, Dottie took some meat from the freezer to thaw it in the sink and told Ken, the builder, she was heading out for a little while. Ken said she told him she was going to visit a friend that had or got cancer and was going to walk around because it wasn't far. She mentioned the friend was female and had lost her hair due to chemotherapy treatment. Her friend Dallas?
1: More than likely.
0: Later that afternoon, Ken the Builder left. That was at about 4pm. As he packed up his tools, he was surprised Dottie wasn't home yet. Her daughter Marie tried to call her a couple of times that afternoon and felt concerned when she failed to answer. Marie called her brother Lessel, who agreed to check on their mum on his way home from work. Later that evening he let himself into her house and noticed it was quiet and unoccupied. Her day planner was left out. It had a dinner date with a group of women written in for that night, so he assumed that's where she had gone and left. The next day Marie continued calling her mother to no avail. When Dottie still didn't answer, she called Lessel and they met up to file a missing person's report. A major search was launched for Dottie. Police door-knocked the area and rescue and dog squads searched the cliffs and shoreline of Lurline Bay. Marie made and put up missing persons posters all over the area. Police checked hospitals, the morgue, trains, buses and airports. Dottie's children felt something terrible had happened to their mother. They were waiting on tenterhooks for information on her whereabouts. Police spoke to the doctor Dottie had seen to treat her skin cancers on the morning of the day she disappeared, Dr Andre Hasky. He said due to her health conditions, she wouldn't be able to walk back up the hill and said she probably would have organised a lift home if she'd gone out on foot. He said she wasn't depressed or suicidal when he saw her. Although she had suffered depression in 1984 after the loss of her husband and again in 1993 when she tried to stop smoking. He also said she had gone away alone once before without telling anyone. According to the book Lady Killer by Candace Sutton and Erin Connolly, she told him, Those kids of mine won't leave me alone. If I want to go somewhere, I will. I don't have to be beholden to my children. On that occasion, she had gone to Lismore in northern New South Wales, but her family had tracked her down within 24 hours. Police held a press conference about the missing wealthy widow on June 3rd, but it didn't gain much traction with the media and wasn't front page news. Why do you think it didn't get much traction, Tara? Wealthy white widow goes missing from an exclusive Sydney suburb? The headlines write themselves. I think
1: most people didn't suspect foul play and assumed that Dottie may have fallen off one of the cliffs and her body was taken out to sea by the tide.
0: Hmm. On June 5th, detectives searched Dottie's residence. They found no sign of forced entry or a struggle. Everything appeared to be as it should be.
1: Police interviewed Ken the Builder for hours on June 1st and again on June 8th. They also put him under surveillance. Being the last person to see Dottie initially made him the prime suspect in her disappearance. Dottie's son, Lessel, also became a suspect after police learned that Dottie had loaned him a million dollars.
0: Well, that sounds like a decent motive.
1: Well, here's another one. On June 20th, Dottie's godson, 33-year-old Wayne Rubin, went to speak to police at Maroubra Police Station. He told them that she'd recently lent a considerable amount of money to a family friend by the name of Bruce Burrell, who was married to Dottie's friend Dallas. According to the book Lady Killer by Candace Sutton and Erin Connolly, Reuben had found Dottie a sensible and practical woman who was in charge of every aspect of her life, particularly her finances, but Reuben disliked and distrusted Bruce Burrell. Dottie was generous with her money and her daughter Marie was able to tell police about several people that she'd loaned money to. After speaking to Reuben, police decided to interview Bruce and Dallas Burrell. They lived in a fancy apartment with seaside views and thick white shag pile carpet. Dallas didn't seem to know much about her husband Bruce's comings and goings or his source of income. He'd told her he was doing freelance work at the time, but unbeknownst to her, he wasn't earning any income. They were asked to come into the Maroubra Police Station the next day to make a statement. At 9am on June 29th, Bruce and Dallas Burrell rocked up at the station. Detective Whitfield noted, Bruce was all charm and Dallas was dressed up to the nines. Bruce managed to mention that he drove a grey Jaguar during the interview like he did when speaking to pretty much anyone. Detective Whitfield said of Bruce, he came across as a big guy, a company director with a big house in Maroubra and a country property, and Dallas was keeping up with the Joneses. Police separated the couple to interview them. Dallas had been at work on the day of Dottie's disappearance and hadn't made any plans to meet her. Bruce said he'd been at work too. Dallas told the police about a cheque she said that Dottie had asked Bruce to process for her. When asked by police if Dottie had lent Bruce money, he said no. She'd just asked him to process a cheque for her. Detective Bignall remarked of Bruce's conman charm, he was as slick as a fresh dog turd.
0: <laughs> How poetic.
1: Oh, yeah. Accurate. After the interview with police, Bruce called Marie and he was mad. He insisted on going to her place to explain the financial arrangement he'd made with her mother, Dottie, whether she wanted him to or not. Much to Marie's relief, Dallas came with Bruce to her house. Nervous, chain-smoking and drinking a stubby of his favourite beer, VB... Bruce told Marie that her mother, Dottie, had asked him to process a cheque for $100,000 and to keep it a secret as she wanted to hide the money from her children. He said he did what she wanted and she gave him $10,000 as a thank you.
0: Now, this story doesn't make any sense. What does process a cheque mean? Is she laundering money? What the hell is going on?
1: Kind of what that sounds like. Look, like the story didn't add up to Marie either. She said, I was blowing out of the water. What he was telling me just didn't make any sense. So there, Marie feels the same way you do. Mm, Good. Yeah, well, Dottie and Marie were close, and she'd told Marie that Bruce had called and asked her to lend him $500,000 as a loan to buy a new beachfront property for Dallas. Apparently, he planned to buy the apartment next door to theirs and knock out the walls to give them a super fancy Uber apartment. Um, so she told Marie that she'd agreed to loan him a smaller amount of money, not the full 500000 mm.
0: So, hmm... Peter Grace, who hired Bruce to work at Peter Grace and Associates in Crowsnest on a commission basis at the time, had been told by Bruce about him borrowing the hundred grand from Dottie. Peter said Bruce claimed he had received the money from her and she wanted to get the money back from him. He said that she was an annoyance. He was annoyed at her temerity. He told me she had gone so far as to say, I'll take legal action to get that money off you. Despite dropping this damning bombshell, Peter confirmed Bruce's alibi for May 30th and the police accepted that and moved on. Ken the builder was also ruled out and the case went cold. Marie and Lessel were bereft. They didn't know what had happened to their mother and it seemed they were the only ones who cared about the case anymore. A year after Dottie disappeared, Marie and Lessel held a memorial service at St Jude's Anglican Church in Randwick. The church was packed with friends, family and many others whose lives had been touched by the generous and caring Dottie. Bruce attended the service but did not speak or even look at Marie before scurrying off. Two years after Dottie vanished, Lessell called his sister to tell her a Sydney woman had been kidnapped and police were searching Bruce Burroughs' country property in relation to it. According to the book Lady Killer, at that moment any last secret hope she might have held that her mother was alive vanished. Now let's find out more about the slick as a fresh dog turd Bruce, shall we Tara?
1: Oh yes, we definitely should.
0: Bruce Allen Burrell was born on January 25th, 1953 in Goulburn, New South Wales. His parents Alan and Linda nicknamed their tubby blonde firstborn child Tiger. Alan expected big things from his boy and gave in to every demand he had. Well, he might have expected big things, but um, he's going to be disappointed.
1: (laughs) He's going to be sorely disappointed. (laughs) May I have a pony made out of diamonds, Papa?
0: Well, not until you'll finish your gold-plated Cocoa Pops first, son. When Bruce was eight years old, his sister, Deborah, was born, and seven years later, another sister, Tonya, joined the family. This meant Tubby Tiger didn't always get what he wanted anymore. He was not happy about this, Tara, and was fond of hurling himself on the ground and throwing massive tantrums, even in public. He would also hold his breath until his mother panicked and gave him whatever he wanted, which was often sugary treats.
1: That would not have worked on my mum. Like, she would have just let me go unconscious and then probably laughed at me for it afterwards.
0: Bruce particularly enjoyed bullying other children and didn't have anything against hitting girls, even in kindergarten. He also likes spitting on and throwing rocks at children and adults alike. In response, Bruce's dad gave him every toy and treat he asked for.
1: Damn, this Bruce sounds like a bit of a prick.
0: Oh, he's the whole prick, Tara.
1: <laughs> Not just the tip.
0: His dad even got in a fist fight with a neighbour who turned a hose on Bruce after Bruce spat on him. Tubby Tiger could do no wrong in his mummy and daddy's eyes and no matter what he did to other people, he was never punished. Bruce went to Burke Street Primary School where he was good at punching girls, spitting on teachers, swimming and playing rugby league football. His dad was particularly proud of those la- those first two things. No, the last two things. At the age of 17, Bruce left high school and got a job as a bank teller. Over the next several months, he stole a substantial amount of money from customers' accounts. One dollar for you? One dollar for me. One dollar for you. One dollar for me.
1: (laughs) Of course he did. Brucie was used to getting anything his heart desired.
0: Everything the light touches is Brucie's kingdom.
1: My name is Brucie Tiger and everything's mine
0: if I want it. It's weird that his folks called him Tiger when what he actually looks like is a dark-hearted version of Porky Pig.
1: Young Brucie was caught and found guilty of theft. Bruce avoided jail time after his dad paid back the money he'd stolen and he was only put on a year's probation. Bruce worked as a junior copywriter from 1971 to 73 at radio station 2GB in Sydney. His resume was made of lies, claiming that he was a big wig in the advertising world and boasted clients like Volvo, Mercedes-Benz and Fabergé.
0: Fabergé? They make those fancy eggs.
1: Uh, I think he meant the ones that make jeans. Young Bruce liked his girlfriends to come from wealthy families. His first big boy relationship was with Vanessa Jones, whose father was the managing director of billion-dollar jam company IXL.
0: He literally got money for jam.
1: He did. Vanessa said yes when Bruce proposed to her, but her whip-smart dad knew an entitled shithead when he saw one and sent her off to England to get her away from him.
0: Smart move, jam man.
1: Bruce's next girlfriend, Susan Gerathi, thought that she could fix poor, broken Bruce, but she soon realised he was a pathological liar, and there ain't no fix in that. Susan is quoted in the book Lady Killer as saying, I thought he was desperate to please his father. He didn't want to disappoint him. He made up things to make himself appear more successful. He had an overriding fear of failure.
0: More like an overriding fear of earning his own money. <laughs>
1: Susan eventually got tired of Bruce's manipulation and tantrums and broke up with him, but he pursued her hard, begging her to take him back. Susan said, I was never in love with him, but I felt trapped. I wasn't strong enough to say no. I kept thinking maybe I can help because he was a very sad man and had a very sad life. Oh, that's what he told me anyway. Oh, Barney... Is there anything sexier than a manipulative man-baby crying to you that he treats you like shit because he had a so-called sad life?
0: Uh, I think taking a long soak in a bath full of COVID snot would be sexier than that.
1: (laughs) So do I. Been there, done that, didn't even get a lousy I'm with a gigantic manipulative man-baby t-shirt. Under intense pressure from her Catholic family, Susan gave in and married Bruce in 1977. He worked at Channel 8 at the time. He had no friends, and so he asked a man he worked with to be his best man and another co-worker to be his groomsman.
0: During that period that he worked at Channel 8, many co-workers' wallets were stolen. After he moved on to another job, the thefts abruptly stopped. Hmm. My name is Brucie Tiger, and your wallet is actually my wallet.
1: Daddy, I want a flying glass elevator!
0: Brucey bragged about coming from a rich family who made their fortune in emerald mines in New South Wales. It was an imaginary fortune and they were imaginary emerald mines. Do you like how to work the word "twas" into that sentence? Yeah, I did.
1: I thought, thought "twas" was quite a good idea.
0: <laughs> Not long after they were wed, Bruce reported a burglary at he and Susan's house and claimed $11,000 in jewellery and clothing were stolen. Susan saw no evidence of this burglary, but the marriage was so rocky, even at this early stage, that she didn't think it was worth fighting about. After Bruce claimed an insurance payout for the missing items, Susan found some of those items hidden in a closet. When she asked him about it, he was like, "'Oh, whoopsie-daisy, I thought they were stolen!' Susan recalled he had a habit of convincing himself that his lies were in fact the truth until faced with no further alternative but to admit his fabrication.
1: We'll be back with the conclusion of part one of That Bastard Bruce Burrell after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: It's true crime, true crime nerd time!
1: True crime nerd time! True
0: crime nerd time! True crime! Nerd time. I love true crime! True Crime nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book. Movie, TV, series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it. Or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Stephanie, and she wrote to us about the Netflix documentary, Prosecuting Evil, The Extraordinary World of Ben Ferencz. And she writes, Hola, Tara and Barney. I've been enjoying your tales from out here in sunny San Diego, California. I recently watched a documentary on Netflix here in the USA, so hopefully it is worldwide as well.
1: Well, it's not available in Australia at this point, but it might be in other countries.
0: Prosecuting Evil, The Extraordinary World of Ben Ferenc tells the story of a 27-year-old man who became a prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials of Nazi war criminals. The group of Nazis he ended up being the lead prosecutor against were originally not going to be tried because they weren't the big names. Like Mengele and... Uh, Himmler. Yeah. However, Mr. Ferenc had found evidence against these men in a myriad of documents from the Nazi atrocities. This alone would be enough to make him worthy of remembering. But then he goes on to champion cases to fight for the average man when wronged by corporations or municipal agencies. He also fought for the creation of the International Criminal Court, in part by writing an op-ed with Robert Vietnam War Advisor McNamara in order to convince the Clinton administration to sign on to the Rome Statute. Into his 90s, he continues to be an advocate for the use of the law to prevent genocide in order to make society into a more equitable and safe place. Sounds like a bit of a hero.
1: He sounds very cool.
0: Thanks for your entertaining podcast and may 2021 bring us all the world that would make Ben Ferenc happy, Stephanie. Thank that you, is a Stephanie. Lovely sentiment. Thank you, Stephanie. That documentary is called Prosecuting Evil The Extraordinary World of Ben Ferenc, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to contribute.
1: Things have been tough all over this year.
0: And we're dealing with issues we didn't expect and couldn't have imagined.
1: Is everything going on in the world at the moment and the way this year is panning out having a negative impact on your mental health?
0: Are these unprecedented circumstances stopping you from achieving your goals?
1: Have you had about as much as you can take and you're not sure what to do about
0: it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder.
1: Barney and I are both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health.
0: BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are.
1: BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist.
0: You can connect in a safe and private online environment.
1: And you can start communicating in under 24 hours.
0: It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help.
1: You can communicate with your counsellor any
0: You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions.
1: All without having to leave your house.
0: BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed.
1: It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available.
0: And it's a service you can access worldwide.
1: You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as relationships, sleeping problems, trauma and family conflicts.
0: And, of course, anything you share is confidential.
1: It's convenient, professional and very affordable.
0: If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp.
1: And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash Bloody Murder.
0: Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health.
1: In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA.
0: Get matched to a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs.
1: If you don't believe us, feel free to check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website.
0: So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Him. and I'm Jennifer.
1: We're the hosts of the podcast inebriated input. Every other week we get drunk and answer your questions. Whether it's how to handle a breakup or your latest roommate drama or just what you should buy if you're getting a cat we're here for you while drinking a lot and being generally charming and funny inebriated input is available on stitcher spotify apple podcast or basically anywhere
0: you listen to your podcasts
1: and you can find more info at inebriatedinput.com
0: cheers and now for the conclusion of part one of that bastard bruce burrell
1: By the 1980s, Susan was fed up with Bruce's lying, controlling behaviour and aggressive tantrums. She wanted a divorce, but due to the religious way she was raised, she believed that marriage should be forever. She was relieved when Brucey set his sights on a female graphic designer named Dallas Bromley from his new job at Media Advertising Services. Hey, baby. (laughs) Hey, Bromley. True to Brucey's money-grubbing form, Dallas came from a wealthy family and faster than a cheetah riding a motorbike, Bruce dropped Susan like a hot potato made of lava. That is hot. Yeah, it was. It's pretty hot. She said she was glad to be rid of him. It was a godsend. He found someone with more money than me. In 1984, 23-year-old Dallas was a tall, slim, well-dressed woman with bright red hair and a mind of her own. What she saw in 31-year-old red-faced, paunchy, chain-smoking alcoholic con man Bruce is beyond us.
0: Well, he was as slick as a fresh dog turd. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, they can be quite shiny but also stinky. I'm not sure if she wore a peg on her nose, but for some reason their romance blossomed and they both found higher paying jobs at the Advertising Works Group, who had Crown Equipment as a client. This was how Brucey met Bernie Whelan in 1985. Bernie was a successful businessman who was head of the Australian and Asian arm of Crown Equipment, a multinational company that was in the business of selling forklifts. Bruce was in charge of the Crown account and met with Bernie regularly for business meetings, sometimes over boozy lunches. He and Bruce were also avid hunters who went pig shooting together.
0: Is it self-loving behaviour for a man who so resembles a pig to be in the habit of shooting pigs for fun?
1: Not by the hairs on his chinny-chin-chins.
0: I wish someone would come down his chimney.
1: I think that sounds way dirtier than you meant it to.
0: No, it doesn't. Oh, it kind of does, actually. It <laughs>
1: would have to. Oh, Brucie. No one wants to come down Brucey's chimney. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Brucey, No Friends again asked a co-worker to be his best man at his wedding to Dallas. Although he had a well-paying job as an advertising manager, he asked co-workers to loan him money to buy an engagement ring for his new bride. Bruce and Dallas were married on October 12, 1985. Bernie Wheelan and his wife Carrie and Dottie Davis were in attendance. Carrie and Dallas really headed off and soon with Brucey and Bernie they started hanging out more and going on double dates. Bruce and Dallas were also welcomed into the Wheelan home and spent time with their kids. It looked as though Brucie had finally found a friend. At AdWorks, his employers were unimpressed by Bruce's limited copywriting skills, bad spelling and poor grammar, seeing yet another firing in his immediate future. Brucey wisely jumped ship. He and an acquaintance set up a business called Bay Communications and kept Bernie Whelan and Crown Equipment as a client. It wasn't long before Bruce was back to his sloth-like ways and stopped coming to work altogether. When confronted about his laziness, he told his colleagues he had a brain tumour but it was a secret because he didn't want his wife to know as she'd worry. Right. Secret brain tumour. That's the name of my fourth album.
1: I was surprised by how many um, Phil Collins covers you had on it.
0: It's a groovy kind of brain tumour.
1: <laughs> it's a groovy kind of secret brain tumour.
0: It was not only a secret brain tumour, but like his family emerald mines, it was an imaginary one. The company soon went bust. Despite Bruce no longer having an income, he and Dallas bought a seaside apartment in Maroubra. They later bought the flat next door and knocked out the wall between them to make themselves that, you know, super apartment that we talked about yeah, earlier. Yeah, with
1: the white shag pile carpet and the ocean views. I
0: imagine they had those suspended egg chairs
1: Ooh, that I'm- hang
0: from the ceiling.
1: I would like to think so, but I'm not entirely sure. If they did, it would have been Dallas's work because Brucey just wanted somewhere to plonk his fat ass while he drank his VB and Shane smoked and like, thought about how to fuck yeah. people's lives up. In
0: 1988, with the help of Dallas's parents, they brought a farm called Hillydale in Bungonia near Goldburn in New South Wales, around two and a half hours drive from Sydney. Dallas loved horses and was glad to be able to buy herself one and keep it at the property. The Burrells Country Estate was right next door to Morton National Park, which boasted 200,000 hectares of forest land, including dozens of dams and abandoned mine shafts. Of the National Park, Bruce told an acquaintance on what would later prove to be a foreshadowing moment, you could get lost in the forest for weeks. You could bury a body there and nobody would find it. He told another acquaintance, you could hide a body so easily out there and no one would ever find it. I knew the area like the back of my hand.
1: Oh, he's a smooth criminal, isn't he?
0: Ah. Brucey loved to play the fancy country squire and invite business associates to come to Hillydale on the weekends to hunt the local wildlife. Living in the country also allowed Brucey to indulge in his love of guns. He was gun crazy. Ah, guns! I love them! And also didn't mind shooting critters with a big fuck-off crossbow when the mood struck him.
1: In 1989, Bernie Whelan hired Bruce Burrell to be the head of Crown Equipment's advertising department. Bernie had fallen for Bruce's smooth-talking ways and had no idea that he didn't have the skills or work ethic to back it up.
0: Well, we already know he was as slick as a fresh dog turd.
1: During his employment with Crown Equipment, Bruce did nothing but drink coffee, read the paper, eat greasy takeaway food and delegate all his work to others in the department. One co-worker described him as fucking useless. Another said he was lazy, untidy, self-opinionated, unethical and a name dropper. If anyone at the company tried to get Bruce to like actually do some work, he'd make sure that he mentioned his close personal friendship with Bernie Whelan. Bernie retrenched Bruce from Crown on Christmas Eve in 1990. Why? Well, okay, the, the economy was in a downturn and Bruce didn't really do any work. It was because he was shit. His co-workers referred to this as having their Christmas wishes coming true. Oh
0: joy, I'm having the most splendid Christmas. Now that that brizzy bastard's gone.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They told Bernie how Bruce bullied those under him and took credit for their work. Bruce was pissed off he'd got retrenched before his underlings, but pretended to be cool with it to keep in Bernie's good books. Bernie and his wife Carrie continued to socialise with Bruce and Dallas after he was retrenched. Bernie had even lent Bruce his .223 Ruger rifle. See, Bruce wasn't good at the whole borrowing something and then giving it back thing. He figured if someone lent him something, it was now his. After a long period of time, Bernie asked Bruce if he could have back his rifle. Bruce said that he had it in the boot of his car, which he'd driven to the inner city suburb of Redfern on business, and he said that some dodgy prick had stolen it out of his car boot while he was in a meeting.
0: (laughs) Was Bruce a dodgy prick?
1: He was indeed, but Bernie didn't know that yet. In 1992, Bernie mentioned to Bruce that the drought was affecting he and Kerry's ability to feed the cattle they kept at their 30-acre property at Willow Park. Bruce offered to temporarily house the cattle at his property in Bungonia, which had plenty of feed. Bernie sent his pedigree cows, calves and a bull to Bruce's. And what do you think happened next?
0: Uh, I know. He left them all in the boot of his car in Redfern and some dodgy prick stole them.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. A few weeks later, Bruce called Bernie and said that all his cattle had wandered off into the Morton National Park adjoining his property and were lost forever. After these incidents, Bernie didn't trust Bruce anymore.
0: See, this is why Bruce didn't have any friends. Exactly. With his resume made of lies and his sweaty ginger snake oil salesman charm, Bruce got employed in job after job, but would only last a few months before he got sacked for his non-existent work ethic. Bruce acted like a big important executive, but was always asking to borrow lunch money from his co-workers, (laughs) on the days he bothered to show up for work, that is. While freshly employed as an advertising executive for Ultratune Automotive Services, Bruce made a delightful speech to the company board of directors. Mm -hmm. Bruce told them, I'm very new to Ultratune, pretty virginal really, but I'm sure that if I leave my legs open this afternoon, you guys will know what to do. (laughs) He went on to say he was hoping to open up verbal intercourse between us.
1: Classy.
0: And... (laughs) (laughs) In January 1994, Dallas was diagnosed with cancer. She had to go for chemo twice a week, but kept on working and financially supporting Bruce, who hadn't had a proper job since 1992. According to the book Lady Killer, Bruce was sour and controlling. He asked her why she had to work so hard, demanded to know why she had late meetings, and questioned her about who she met.
1: Way to be there for your wife who not only has cancer, but is also supporting you financially. Nice one, Brucey.
0: Just before Christmas in 1995, Bruce came home with the grey Jaguar Sovereign and told Dallas he bought it for her. But just like Homer Simpson gifting Marge with the bowling ball, Bruce had actually got it for himself, and it was he who drove the Jaguar from then on. Brucey was prone to aggressive tantrums and loved punching doors.
1: Did he still hold his breath until he got sugary treats?
0: Well, not really, because he was a chain smoker by then.
1: Yeah, you can't, you can't really do both,
0: can you? You can't. I've tried. Dallas wanted to leave Bruce, but was scared of what the violent bastard would do to her when he found out. She made a plan with her mother to escape him. He was furious and called her regularly to abuse and threaten her, saying, I'll send your horse to the dog meat factory. After they separated, Dallas stayed in the Sydney apartment and Bruce stayed in Bungonia. To win Dallas's sympathy, he recycled his lie about having a brain tumour. When she rang the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital to ask about his treatment, they said they had no record of him being a patient. This was not only the straw that broke the camel's back, Tara, it took a large stinking dump on it. With that, Dallas continued with the divorce proceedings. Yeah! After his divorce, Bruce could no longer live off Dallas's income and had no income of his own. He borrowed tens of thousands of dollars off his doting father, but that well eventually ran dry. He could have got a job, but working was for suckers.
1: In April 1997, with only $941 in his bank account, Bruce was not going to be able to pay the monthly mortgage at his Bungonia property if he didn't get himself some quick cash. He started scheming to come up with a nefarious and diabolical plan to make a fast buck. On April 7th, Bernie Whelan had been at a work function and when he returned to his office, he had a message to call Bruce Burrell. It had been four years since they'd spoken. Bernie wasn't keen on calling Bruce back. He didn't trust him anymore and he knew he'd only be calling if he wanted something. On his drive home, Bernie gritted his teeth and called back his slimy old pig shooting pal. On the phone, Bruce delivered a tangential monologue about, well, nothing in particular. All the while, Bernie was trying to understand the purpose of the call, but there didn't seem to be one. Bruce asked Bernie a few questions about himself and Bernie mentioned that he was traveling a lot for work and currently spent every Wednesday in Adelaide on business. When he hung up the phone, Bernie still didn't know what the hell the call had been about. A few weeks later, on a Wednesday morning, Bruce decided to pop in unannounced at the Whelan's property, which was about an hour and 20 minutes drive northwest of Sydney. The and family lived in a big five-bedroom red brick house with a pool, a tennis court, horses, and a motorbike track for their three children, Sarah, Matthew, and James, to zoom around on. So, like, it was in a rural area, essentially. There was a little cottage at the back of the house where the kid's nanny and horse trainer, 31-year-old Amanda Minton Taylor, stayed sometimes. Like, it's just not the kind of place that you pop in at unannounced. Bruce drove his grey Jaguar to the front entrance of the property but found the gate locked. There was a keypad lock that required a PIN number to enter, which had not been there when he'd previously visited the property years ago. The gate was a fair whack of distance from the house. Although he had his mobile phone with him in his car, Bruce did not use it to call the Whelans. Instead, he drove to North Richmond, around 10 minutes away, and called the Whelan home from a public phone box. His call was answered by the Whelan's nanny, Amanda Minton-Taylor. Also home at the time was Carrie Whelan and her 11-year-old son, James. Bruce told Amanda that he was an old friend popping in to say hello. She could not find Kerry at that time to ask permission, but since he said he was an old friend, she gave Bruce the keypad number so he could open the gate. The drive from the gate to the Whelan's house usually took about two minutes, but over ten minutes passed before Bruce's jag pulled up to the residence. Carrie and Bruce chatted in the kitchen. She introduced him to Amanda when she came back up from the stables. Amanda noticed that he'd kept his sunglasses on inside and turned his back to her when she entered the room. But she just figured like he was a snobby, rude man who had no interest in meeting the hired help. Carrie and Bruce went outside to have coffee in the courtyard. Through the kitchen window, Amanda noticed that Carrie was not acting like her usual friendly self. Her body language seemed defensive. Amanda called out the window to ask Carrie if her guest was staying for lunch. Carrie quickly answered no without checking with Bruce. Soon he left and Carrie came into the kitchen to speak to Amanda. She asked her to do her a favor and not tell Bernie that Bruce had visited. She said she'd tell Amanda the reason for that in a couple of weeks because it was a surprise. While Kerry rinsed the coffee cups in the sink, she seemed upset and said aloud to herself, Why is this bastard doing this to me?
0: Over a week later, on Tuesday May 6, 1997, 39-year-old fashion lover Kerry Whelan was struggling to figure out what to pack for a trip to Adelaide later that day. She was accompanying her husband Bernie on one of his regular trips and they were due to fly out at 5.30pm. He had to go there on business but they planned to have some fun going to the wineries in the Barossa Valley afterwards. It would be a chance for the two of them to spend some quality time together without the kids. Carrie and her husband of 17 years, Bernie, were also planning a joint big 100 years birthday party as he was due to turn 60 a month before Carrie turned 40. Kerry told Bernie she had a beautician's appointment at 9.30am in Parramatta. He went to drop the kids off at 8am and said he'd see Kerry at 4pm that afternoon. He drove 15-year-old Sarah and 11-year-old James to school at Arndale College in Oakville. 13-year-old Matthew was feeling sick that day so he was allowed to stay home. Kerry went to her friend Marjorie's place. She happened to be the mother of their nanny Amanda. They were close friends. March was a respected horsewoman who had taught Kerry to ride as a kid. Their family spent a lot of weekends together at horse shows and competitions. The two were excitedly planning a trip together to London that Kerry's generous husband Bernie was going to pay for. Kerry always wore her most expensive jewellery when she travelled. She'd once lost $30,000 worth of jewellery when a bag she had on an overseas trip went missing. That morning Kerry was wearing a diamond bracelet, hoop earrings and her gold engagement and wedding rings which came to a combined value of $50,000. She drove her silver Land Rover Discovery to a parking garage near the Empire Hotel in Parramatta where she always parked when she was in the area. Kerry gave the parking attendant her keys, left the parking lot and got into the passenger side of a green Mitsubishi Pajero which then drove off. Later that afternoon, Bernie Whelan waited outside his office in Smithfield for his wife. She was late, which wasn't unusual. But after 15 minutes, he called her mobile phone, which went to voicemail. He called home, but Amanda hadn't heard from Kerry since she'd left. Neither had Marge. Kerry was a big communicator, so it was a bit odd she hadn't spoken to any of them since the morning. According to the book Lady Killer, she and Bernie talked on the phone at least three times a day. He kept calling her every couple of minutes but couldn't get a hold of her. He told his secretary to reschedule their flights. Bernie drove to where he knew Kerry always parked in Parramatta, with many scenarios of what could have happened to her racing through his mind. He found her car in the parking lot but she was nowhere to be seen. At 5.23pm he called the police to report his wife missing. The operator advised him to go to Parramatta Police Station to speak to police. 59-year-old Bernie ran the 10 minutes to the police station to report Kerry missing. The police asked all of their usual questions.
1: Did Kerry want to go on the trip?
0: Did she have any mental health problems?
1: Had she ever tried to commit suicide?
0: Were they having marital issues?
1: Was he banging the nanny?
0: Was she banging the nanny?
1: Were they both banging the nanny?
0: How many jelly beans can Barney fit in his mouth?
1: Due to her expensive jewellery, Bernie was worried that Kerry had been mugged. The officer told him that 30,000 people are reported missing every year in Australia and 99% of them are located within hours. Bernie couldn't shake the feeling that something terrible had happened to Kerry. On his way home, he called IntelliSec, which was his business's security and risk assessment company, and spoke to its director, Steve Benton. Steve had been about to have dinner with his family, but instead drove to Parramatta, where he and a colleague looked around the car park and spoke to people for hours trying to find Kerry. Bernie called friends and relatives of Kerry's to see if they'd heard from her, but they hadn't. At 6.40am the next day, Detective Sergeant Alan Duncan called Bernie. He didn't wake him, as Bernie had not slept. Unfortunately, Bernie didn't know the name of the beauticians Kerry said she had an appointment with that morning. Police contacted all the beauticians in Parramatta, but none of them had an appointment for Kerry on May 6th. They searched and fingerprinted her car. The next day, Bernie received a ransom note by mail in a long yellow business envelope. It was two pages long, typed in capital letters on white paper. Bernie went pale and nearly fainted.
0: The ransom note was poorly worded and spelled. It read... There will be no second chances. Follow all instructions or your wife will die. By the time you receive this letter, she will be safely in our keeping. To ensure her safe return, you must at no time bring in the police, the press, any authorities or outside assistance. We will know if you do so. The consequences of breaching this rule will be dire for your wife.
1: You are not our first Australian target. There have been others. You have not heard of this in the past because they have implicitly followed all instructions and been reunited with their loved ones. Do not underestimate our capabilities. We will know if you breach any conditions at any time and you and your family will not see her again. This is our guarantee. The ransom for her return is $1 000, 000 US dollars. The rate of exchange means you will pay $1,250,000 Australian dollars to be paid in $100 Australian notes. Ensure only the new plastic notes are used. No paper currency. No consecutively numbered notes. And the money is to be delivered in a heavy-duty green plastic garbage bag.
0: The money is not to be photocopied. No remote transmitting devices. No radioactive dusts. No dies. No means of tracing the money is to be used. We are able to scan and test for all such devices and any other method you may use. Do not be tempted for if anything is used to trace the money, it will not be collected and your wife will die. No further contact will be made. You have seven days. When the money is ready, you are to put an advertisement in the public notice section of the Sydney Daily Telegraph newspaper saying... Anyone who witnessed a white Volkswagen Beetle beside the eastern gates of the Sydney Olympic site at 10.30pm on Tuesday 8.497, please call then put your home telephone number at the end of the advertisement.
1: After the advertisement has been in the newspaper, we will be in contact within three days at your home to tell you the next step. Be ready to leave with the money at any time. The money is to be delivered by you and nobody else. Do not substitute yourself for the delivery. You must be alone. Have no wires on yourself or in the car you use. We will know if you try to use them. Do not use the car radio. Any sign of outside involvement or interference and your wife will die. We will be aware of everything you do. Take care. This is your only means of ever seeing her alive again. That's where we're going to end the first part of our special on That Bastard Bruce Burrell. Make sure you tune in next episode to find out about the investigation, which was one of the biggest in Australian history, and also what eventually brings Brucey undone.
0: Oh, it's going to be a cracker.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, Tara, I have a question for you.
1: Yes, Barney?
0: What is Aussie Az?
1: Aussie has a of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. According to the Queensland Times, a thrill-seeking security guard terrorised Brisbane women for four years by masturbating naked in front of them on footpaths, at bus stops and in bushes. 44-year-old Benjamin surprise wanker Moran pleaded guilty to 33 indecent acts between January 2015 and January 2019. His MO was to hide behind trees or bushes and jump out at unsuspecting women while furiously jerking off wearing nothing but a cap and sunglasses. Sometimes he'd park his van near bus stops and beat his meat at women as they went by. To avoid detection, Benji removed the signage for his business from his van Well, that's a missed opportunity for some viral marketing right there.
0: (laughs) Like what you see? Call Moran Security on 1800 Self-Sex. We'll ensure nobody fucks with you but me.
1: (laughs) Benji did most of his surprise wanking on a suburban street in inner-city Windsor. But to mix things up a bit, he'd also jump out of bushes and from behind trees spanking his little monkey at women in the Brisbane suburb of Annerley too. Look, he happened to end up in front of a female magistrate, which I think is fitting. Must have been pretty hard for him to uh, keep his pants on during that. Magistrate Belinda Merrin told Benji, on each occasion you hid behind a tree or some sort of construction. You waited and then as an adult woman approached, who was by herself, you then removed yourself from the covering and began masturbating. Wouldn't he like ask them for ID before wanking at them? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Excuse me, miss, can I have some and see some identification?
1: No! Also, put some fucking clothes on. I don't need to see a sad little earthworm. Magistrate Belinda Merrin went on to say, One of the particularised incidents involved a woman who noted there was a mirror placed in a tree which would seem to allow you to see who was approaching the area in which you had concealed yourself.
0: Diabolical. <laughs>
1: Benji told the court that he felt compelled to seek the adrenaline rush of pumping his puppy in front of unwitting women who randomly encountered him while minding their own damn business. He didn't say anything to them or touch them, but many of the women were freaked out and anonymously called Crime Stoppers.
0: Oh, look, it's like a real penis, only smaller.
1: (laughs) No, it'd actually be quite scary because you'd assume that a dude jerking off at you might potentially rape you. I mean, he clearly has no issue with boundaries.
0: Uh, Yeah, and you wouldn't want a man to jump out wanking at your mum while she's just walking down the street to the shops.
1: No! My mum's five foot nothing and weighs about as much as a sandwich, so physically she'd be no match for him. She could probably say something so scathing to him that he'd burst into tears and run off, though. (laughs) A psychological report found Benji suffered compulsive exhibitionist disorder, meaning that he got turned on by the notion of women seeing him masturbate. Has he not heard of the fucking internet?
0: Well, there'd have to be hundreds of chat rooms catering to this exact kink.
1: I know, right? Benji was sentenced to six months in prison for each of the 23 charges, suspended for two years, and put on probation for the other 10 charges. God, it's never women who do this sort of thing, is it? Like, women don't naked jump out of bushes, like, you know, double-clicking the mouse at you, do they? And we don't go around sending random dudes vag pics online either.
0: Speak for yourself.
1: Oh, oh are you getting sent vag pics, are you? I might be. I haven't seen any come into the bloody murder email account.
0: Well, that's they send them to my private email and through Messenger. Do they now? Yeah, all the time.
1: Yeah, I don't believe you. That's you don't check it's... Messenger.
0: Yeah, that's not is... true. <laughs> 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 I don't actually.
1: This brings us to the end of the episode.
0: So that was Aussie Az, was it?
1: Yes, that was Aussie Az.
0: That was good. I really yes. like that.
1: Yeah, you like you like the wanking stories, don't you? Oh,
0: you should do an Aussie Az every episode. <laughs>
1: I'll take that on board and think about it. This brings us to the end of the episode.
0: But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews.
1: So thank you to Tuffy's Mrs from Australia. Hey, Nelly.
0: I think I know who that is. We've Mm -hmm. got XXL Historian. In the United States.
1: Yeah, they write us a new review every, uh, every fortnight, I've noticed. But, yeah. you know, don't stop. And um, We'd also like to thank Truck Stop Murder podcast from the United States. That's a pretty new one. Check it out. Uh, thank you, Gary.
0: We've got Penny Kovac. And that's it. We'd also <laughs> like to thank the wonderful Lorraine for all the work she does running the Facebook group with Tara.
1: You know who else is awesome? Patrons, we love them. We love them so much that we've been holding monthly giveaways.
0: Our October prize is a bloody murder 18 by 24 inch film fine art print. I liked it so much I hung on me wall.
1: The winner of our Patreon September prize that keep kicking against the pricks coffee mug is Scott Quinn.
0: Congratulations, Scott, who just became a patron, but it is a random number thing. So So
1: he just became a patron and he won straight up.
0: Yeah. He's going to have
1: unreasonable expectations about how great we are.
0: (laughs) Uh, We'll soon dash that.
1: Yeah, don't worry. He'll learn.
0: For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above.
1: Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to Scott Quinn,
0: Matthew Craig,
1: Justin Bamis, Ray Coon, and Scott Martin.
0: If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black.
1: And I've been Tara Saraban.
0: And this was Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcast, our IMDb listing or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and hey baby would still count.
1: And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us continue to bring you stories about... Stinking bastards. (laughs) You can follow us on our Facebook page and join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore podcast.
0: Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise.
1: Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon.
0: Goodbye and adios.
1: And keep kicking against the pricks. Every time I try and write mother when I'm like writing a script, it, it tries to it predictively goes motherfucker. Oh wow. also every time I write cunt in a message on my phone, it capitalizes the C. Uh, these are the things that make me happy in a dark, dark world. This is part one of our two spot
0: two fart. <laughs> this is this is <laughs> the first fart of our twelve fart.
1: <laughs> Oh, yeah. Wrote it with
0: my uh, bum. You wrote it with your bum.
1: I wrote it with my bum. Oh, and if you think women have no business being associated with comedy either, Bloody Murder's definitely not the podcast for you.
0: Yeah, but and you probably should rethink that too.
1: Yeah, that yes. If you're unaware of your uh, misogynistic tendencies but want to send hate mail to someone because they're female and do comedy, that's on you, come. I yeah, and you.
0: maybe send you send us your address so I can just come and visit you.
1: <laughs> no, so that you can send them some, a fart in a jar.
0: Oh yeah, gift
1: wrapped, gift wrapped, Barney fart in a jar.
0: Well, because of uh, lockdown, I have uh, uh, a plethora of jars <laughs> to choose from. <laughs> it's filling my basement.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you normally just go out and hand them to people who live more than five kilometers away from us, but uh, That's at right. the moment you can't do uh, that, can you?
0: Open this. <laughs> da, da,
1: Did you do that to your dad? Is that who you used to do it to?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, my, and my brother. Mm. Partner Jar. That's, that's a classic. Oh, yeah. Mm. It
1: definitely is.
0: Top shelf comedy.
1: <laughs> it never gets old either.
0: It never gets old.
1: Uh, I still think Mum Piss is better, but what else?
0: <laughs> Mum Piss? That's still going to. Um
1: Mike Brown from Mike the Pleasing Brown. Terrors podcast. He yeah. loves it.
0: He loves it. Yeah, it with. keeps him
1: making his awesome podcast, which right. is fantastic. And I've got to tell you, I think his secret might be Mum Piss.
0: Pleasing Terrors, fueled by Mum Piss.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought Mum Piss.
0: You in particular make a standard ream of white A4 office paper look like it has a healthy glow.
1: That is harsh, but quite accurate. On the plus side, when I run out of under-eye concealer, I can just use white paint.
0: And I wish it would.
1: I do. Well, not today. I mean, like we're recording remotely. I'm going to just look as hideous as I want. You know, I was actually thinking of, um, of painting my face up like Gene Simmons from Kiss, just so that when we we like logged on to the, to the <laughs> video chat to record the episode, you'd be like, what? And then also it would be weird looking at me like that when we were doing the episode, don't you think? What
0: if I never noticed?
1: <laughs> you just pretend it wasn't <laughs> happening.
0: <laughs> look at me! <laughs>
1: Tara, Tara, quick, Gene Simmons is here.
0: (laughs) The the actress or the rock star?
1: Both! (laughs) They had a gigantic love child. She's so pale, it makes me sad.
0: At around 1pm, Dottie took some meat from the freezer to thaw it in the sink. That was an odd way to say it. Thaw it in the sink!
1: That's just how you talk
0: now. Oh, God. Trey-Trey's been playing this game called No Man's Sky and it's like you explore planets and log all the flora and fauna and she found a, a vegetable and it was called a sweet root and I just said, you're a sweet root. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and she went, of oh, you do. oh, thanks.
1: <laughs> uh, see, romance in Australia, it's alive and I well. know. A- ain't no lockdown going to stop that.
0: So that's why how I'm going to describe her now to people.
1: And this is my partner, Trey Trey. She's a sweet root, eh? She's
0: a sweet root. Hey, sweet root, could you get me a beer?
1: I actually went to a horrible party in Melbourne like 22 years ago when I didn't live here. And when we walked in, um, it was like full of bogans, like terrifying sleazy bogans who kept trying to like grab my boobs and stuff. Uh, But as we entered, my friend Jason was holding a six-pack and some guy just went to him, hey, if you give us a beer, I'll let you root me missus. And things just went downhill for me. Wow,
0: that's good. So did he do that?
1: No, no. Although he he and his girl, Jason and his girlfriend had a massive fight and he ended up running away and hiding up a tree and no one could find him except I saw his cigarette, like I saw the light of his cigarette up there and I was like, dude, I know you're there but I'm not going to tell anyone. Uh, if I knew it was good for me, I would have also run away and climbed a tree because that was a very unpleasant party that involved a lot of physically fighting off bogans who wanted to, like, do sex things to you. Oh, really? Yeah, it was quite horrifying, actually. Um, there was a uh, – my my friend whose birthday it was <clears> – <throat> my friend whose birthday it was, is her boyfriend was revolting and pustule covered, and he actually, when he met me, he's like, oh, I've never done it with a real tall chick before. That'd be really hot. Actually, you, if you two, like, do it with me together, that'd be my fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I nearly vomited. Yeah. But they probably thought would have thought that was hot too. It was like there was no escape. It was kind of oh. dangerous but just so gross. <laughs> oh, and then my friends got together and locked themselves in their fucking combi. To like continue their argument and I was left alone in Melbourne at the Bogan party t- defending myself with weapons. Good times. I'm surprised I moved to Melbourne after that. No, that's just actually how you say quiet, even when you're like trying to. <laughs> quiet.
0: It's, I get it's it an onomatopoeia word. Quiet. 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 Hey, baby.
1: Hey, baby. <laughs> hey, baby. Quiet. <laughs> Loud. <laughs> Denim top hat. Woo. Ah, where? <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're terrified of top hats. I gotta, I gotta uh, get myself a Fred Astaire outfit and put on the Ritz next time we uh, Skype. See so if much it's, like yourself, Barney. And, and
0: if it's too hard to drive the Mercedes up the hill, you can get out and just push it up the hill.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's not how that, that goes. Doesn't
0: that work like that?
1: Mm, no, it's not a bike, not a Mercedes bike, cool. <laughs> Not a Mercedes
0: Velocipede. I like that word. Velocipede.
1: It is quite a dashing word.
0: He said she wasn't depressed or suicidal when he saw her. He said she wasn't depressed or suicidal when he saw her.
1: <laughs> Why do you keep calling her a whore? I think that's very inappropriate. It is. What's You know what it is? It's your whore mouth. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Don't put that in. Well, I was thinking earlier today, like for no apparent reason, that my brother used to go around the house singing, I'm the king of the world and the world is earth. Right. Like all the time, when I was about four and he was about eight, that was the song he liked to sing.
0: And was it a real (laughs) fart? At the end of that?
1: No, no, oh, it was right. a fake fart, unfortunately. Right. He wasn't that talented, I guess. Right. He told them that she'd recently lent a considerable amount of money to a family friend by the name of Bruce Burrell, who was married to Dottie's friend with canth- cancer. I'm cancer. I'm trying to say cancer again. You know why it is? It's because I'm from Queensland initially, and I've softened um dancer to dancer, lantana to lantana and Castle to Castle, because I used to get picked on in New South Wales as a kid. So it's just my mind going, oh, that's what that, that does. That's mm. the noise that makes. Cancer. I mean, probably that's how I'm supposed to say it. Oh, no, darling, don't tell me she's got cancer. Oh, fuck, she's got cancer. Yeah, see, that would be how I would have originally said it.
0: Anglican Church in Randwick. The church was packed. The church was packed. The
1: church was packed. Oh, the church was packed. No, oh, it was fucking packed, mate. I was all up to the run. I'm going to see nowhere. Oh, I'm going to get into the church, but it's all fucking
0: packed.
1: Oh, you went too deep again, didn't you? I went Chef? too deep again. <laughs> that always fucks you up. Always. <laughs>
0: what the
1: fuck was that? It was a burp. It's kind of crazy because most of my burps are silent, not even by choice. And you, you just like fucking. The three tenors over there. Every time you burp. Uh,
0: remember that one last last episode that that scared me, and then it made me cry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they were real tears, but I know you were quite afraid.
0: I was. I was very upset. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Out of all the things in the world you could be upset about, <laughs> I like that you chose that.
0: Well, I didn't have any choice. <laughs> When Bruce was 8 years old, his Zebra Debra was born. His, s-
1: Deborah, Deborah, his he's Deborah, got a Zebra Debra? Deborah
0: <laughs> his Zebra Debra. His Debra sister was born.
1: <laughs> when Bruce was 8 years old. When Bruce was 8 years old, his Zebra Debra was born.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, come on.
1: It's actually funnier than anything we wrote. Debra.
0: <laughs> Debra. <Deborah. laughs>
1: so that means like his Zebra's only 8 years younger than him. <laughs>
0: He would also hold his breath until his mother panicked And gave him whatever he wanted Which was often sugary treats
1: That would not have worked on my mum Like she would have just let me go unconscious And then probably laughed at me for it afterwards
0: I would have got slapped into next week
1: I'm not sure that your parents would have even noticed That you'd done it <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh, that's not, that's not funny at all But it's true Which makes it funny Yeah no it is funny
1: I'm sorry. Well, yeah, look, I would have just got ridiculed for that kind of behaviour. I certainly wouldn't have got rewarded. (laughs) Bernie was a successful businessman who was head of the Australian and Asian arm of Crown Equipment, a multinational company that was in the business of selling forklifts.
0: There's nothing like a crown for picking stuff up and putting it down. What? That's the jingle in their ads. In fact, I've got the real version here and I'll just play it for you.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't look that up. I need to hear it. It's a John Singleton, I believe.
0: Yes, it is. Here it is. There is nothing like a crown of picking it up and putting it down. it down. Yeah, that was a jingle in their ads.
1: That is so awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna get that as my
0: ringtone. Picking shit up and putting it down. That's it what wasn't you long.
1: do. what no that's what you do when you got a crown? how does it go?
0: There's nothing like a crown for picking shit up and putting <laughs> it down. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love it. I really do. It's, it's got a beautiful simplicity.
0: It does, because that's what they do.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, I like the sort of aussiness of it all.
0: Yeah. It wasn't long before Bruce was back to his sloth-like ways. Yeah,
1: like I way. think you swallowed a sloth. That would explain <laughs> why you, could, you have to walk your bike uh, up a hill too. <laughs> <it laughs>
0: why well, I have to push my bike up a hill because I ate a sloth?
1: Because you swallowed a sloth. It came down your chimney
0: Oh no, a sloth came down my chimney And now I, now I can't ride my bike up a hill
1: It actually makes sense if you think about it
0: uh, Yeah, it does Dallas loved horses, not in a biblical way
1: Do they talk about horse love in the Bible?
0: No, I meant, you know not in a bestiality way. <laughs> I think that's
1: probably a more accurate way. Of course, she. Okay, do you honestly think any of our listeners are out there picturing like a, a well dressed advertising graphic design lady trying to be bestiality friends with her horse?
0: Well, they are now, thanks to you. You just explained it to them.
1: I like that I've just coined the phrase bestiality friends. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what the fuck? <laughs> you don't need those. <laughs> Bestiality Friends. That's the name of your tour. <laughs> bestiality Friends. What the fuck?
0: Altara, oh, Tara. Oh, she's just my bestiality friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we make a podcast together, but first and foremost, we're bestiality friends.
0: Yeah, maybe that's a website like Facebook. We're bestiality <laughs> friends.
1: Yeah, and it's not just humans who use it. Well, obviously.
0: No, there's Alsatians and horses. Ah, uh,
1: alpacas, camels.
0: Alpacas, turtles, you know, turtles, crickets, cavyñares. Oh,
1: really? Quackers! I want to hook me up with a bestiality friend who's <laughs> a quacker.
0: Ah. Uh. And then we're going to
1: take ecstasy and watch the cricket. <laughs>
0: <laughs> then that quacker can scratch your crime-obsessed itch.
1: Oh. <laughs> Always. Ooh.
0: Dallas loved horses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was nothing suspicious about that sentence I blame I you for starting this
0: He was furious and called her regularly to abuse and threaten her Saying, I'll send your horse to the dog meat factory
1: <laughs> It just sounds funny when you do it in that voice I mean, it's not funny either, obviously but Yeah.
0: I'll send your horse to the dog meat factory
1: I'll send horse to dog meat. Factory. (laughs) Do you like how disjointed that was?
0: Yeah. It it, it sounded like a cross between Colonel Clink and Count Dracula.
1: That is like what I try to deliver every single episode, but I don't usually get it right.
0: God, I'd watch that sex tape.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. You'd have to have a hand free though, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, and then they wave Schultz in. I don't know nothing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's the one filming it. Uh. And then if you think about the whole Hogan's Heroes kind of um, Bob Crane thing about how he liked to make self-porn, this all ties in really neatly.
0: You know when we're talking about Bigfoot and the Hulk last week?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that was hot.
0: I was thinking they would have waved in Shrek. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, but Shrek wouldn't have been into it. But I he don't probably know. might have done it if Fiona wanted him to.
0: Well, yeah, maybe.